Well, good morning to you all, those I've seen five days ago and those I've seen more recently. Please turn with me to Mark chapter 11. There aren't as many of these around nowadays, but I, I heard a story about a book salesman who was going through farm country, and uh, he was selling books on farming techniques, how, how to farm more efficiently. And he came to a house of a farmer, and the farmer happened to be indoors, and he answered the door, and the young man put a book in his hands, he said to the farmer, I guarantee if you buy this book and you read the information inside, you will farm at least twice as well as you do today. The farmer looked at it thoughtfully and put it back in his hand and he said, no thanks. I already don't farm half as well as I know how. <laughs> Sometimes we don't need more information. Uh, instead, we need to walk in what we already know. You know my evangelism professor used that story as, in a, as a principle regarding evangelism, but it's actually true for many aspects of the Christian life. It's not so much that we need a lot more information, it's that we need to walk in what we have already learned. It is true for prayer, and it is true for forgiveness as well. And as we come to our text this morning, uh, we're going to finish Mark's sandwich that we started last week, uh, and we're going to see that Jesus deals with both of these topics. So let's read our passage. We're going to be in Mark chapter 11, starting in verse 20. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus said to them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I pray that you would help us now as we look into your word that you would uh, grant your spirit to fill me, to proclaim your word with boldness, that you would grant your spirit to convict our hearts, to strengthen our hearts, to comfort us, Lord, to give everything we need. Lord, you work through your word. You have said that, you have promised that, and so we rely on you for that today. In Jesus' name, amen. The point of the passage, I think, is pretty straightforward and simple. Believe in God and forgive your enemies. That's one way you could put it. As we work through the passage, uh, we're going to see that Jesus addresses this th through the lens of prayer. And so our first point we'll see is that we want to pray with faith in our hearts. And second, we want to pray with forgiveness in our hearts. And Most of the time will be spent on the first point and a little bit on the second. So first we have a call to pray with faith in your heart. Two weeks ago, 
We sought to join the worshipers on the first Palm Sunday when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a colt and was praised as the son of David. And last week, uh, as Monday of Holy Week started off, we saw Jesus come in and curse a fig tree and then go in and clean house in the temple. And he went back outside of the city for the night and our text opens up on the sunrise of Tuesday morning. The week is progressing along. And this begins a part of Mark's gospel that is more extended, and it covers all sorts of teachings from Jesus. We're going to see interactions and parables and teachings and prophecies. Uh, So we're going to be spending some time now on Tuesday and and Wednesday as well uh, of Holy Week. And our story starts back on the road towards Jerusalem, Just like the previous day, Jesus and his disciples are heading into Jerusalem, and they must have taken the same road because they come by the same fig tree that they had encountered the day before. And let's just say that it's not doing hot. Mark tells us that the fig tree has withered away right down to its roots. You know, it's not that the leaves are a little wilted on this Tuesday morning, it's toast, it is done for. Uh, it's not going to take a little water and perk back up again like a houseplant. When Peter sees it, he's surprised. He says, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus responds with a command, have faith in God. Now perhaps Jesus is gently telling Peter not to act so surprised. Uh, Jesus did curse the fig tree just the day before, after all. Last week we saw how the cursing of the fig tree Uh, could be a a parable that points to the the cursing of the religious system that is hollow and empty. The fruitless fig tree, in some ways, pointed to the fruitless worship that was external uh, and was not genuine before the Lord. As we finish Mark's sandwich here, remember I talked about the sandwich, that there's a story on either sides of another story. There's a story in the middle and they're supposed to tie together. Well, we're... Focusing on the second part of the story, as we look at that, we'll see that Jesus has even more to teach them. Jesus uses the cursing of the fig tree to instruct his disciples on faith-filled prayer. Read these verses again, verses 22 to 24. Jesus answered them, Have faith in God, truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that he... What he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. Jesus uses powerful language here. He has cursed the fig tree, and it has withered. Jesus goes on to tell his disciples that they can even command a mountain to be uprooted and thrown into the sea. And if they believe, it will happen. Jesus then goes on, to say that whatever they ask in prayer will be theirs if they believe that they've received it. Again, that's a striking promise. You ask in faith and you will receive. Jesus teaches something along these lines in every single one of the four Gospels. And in fact, in multiple places in some of the Gospels, he will teach something to this effect. Now this is a command and a promise that can make us uncomfortable. We might ask, what is Jesus saying here? What exactly is he saying? 
in light of the abuses of the prosperity gospel, we might be tempted to read fast over this passage and move on. But that is not the way we want to handle any part of Scripture. It would not be faithful to any part of Scripture to hold our nose and walk over it quickly. We never want to be afraid of the teaching of the Bible. If you are afraid of any part of Scripture, that's probably where you need to go and study and ask God to help you. You might need to invite other people into the conversation uh, to help you understand, but we don't want to hide from anything that God has revealed in his word. Jesus' intention in this passage are as clear as day. He's calling us to pray in faith to God. This is a call to pray. Jesus teaches on prayer in many places, and he always encourages us to pray. Jesus never speaks poorly of prayer. He's never undecided on the importance of prayer. We should never be confused on Jesus' stance on prayer. He's for it. We should do it. I'm stating the obvious here. Jesus calls us to pray, and more than that, he calls us to pray in faith. The contrast to praying in faith here would be praying in doubt. You see that in our passage? Uh, James gives us a great example of this as he calls us in James chapter 1 to pray for wisdom. Listen for faith and doubt in the prayer for wisdom. This is James 1, verses 5 to 8. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the, uh, the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. You see there that doubt is the enemy of faith. Doubt compromises faith. Doubt looks at a promise of God and says, I don't think he's really going to do that. Faith looks at a promise of God and says, he's going to do that. I don't know how, I don't know when, but I know that God will do everything that he has said. That's what faith says. So if we pray with an underlying suspicion that God is not going to answer our prayer, we shouldn't be surprised if he doesn't. Now, if he does answer a doubt-laced prayer, then that's his mercy. And perhaps he's even answering the faith-filled prayer of somebody else praying on our behalf. So, Jesus' intention in this teaching, again, is straightforward. He wants us to pray in faith to God. It's pretty simple. If we miss that, we miss the obvious. We miss the thing that is right there in front of our face. So let's not miss it. And, as a good rule... As we read any passage of Scripture, Scripture interprets Scripture. If we are struggling to understand what a passage is saying and the implications of a passage, we have the context of the entire Bible to inform us on what God has revealed. So as we consider what Jesus means by what he says here, it's important that we see what else Jesus says about prayer, how that plays out in his life, and what his disciples say about prayer. So although Jesus in this passage says that we can ask anything, I think that we can be certain that he excludes some things and what he means by anything. One very obvious example is sin. 
when Jesus says that we can ask for anything in faith, he does not mean that we can confidently ask for sin and expect that God would answer that. If a man asks for an opportunity from God to rob his employer, he can't count on God to provide it. He can't say, well, Jesus, you said anything. I think it's safe to assume that Jesus doesn't mean that. Again, the half-brother of Jesus, James, wrestles with a similar tension. Maybe takes it even farther here. James chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. James, speaking with those reading his letter, and to us, says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So here's a scenario in which somebody asks for something and the reason that they don't receive it is that they ask for it with sinful intentions. Now it seems that the thing that was requested isn't inherently bad, but the purpose is bad and probably the motivation behind it is sinful. So how does that practically work out we're bringing it back to our passage trying to understand what Jesus means here how does that filter into how we read this text well maybe I can give a bad example and a good example let's say I confidently prayed that God would give me a helicopter on my front lawn tomorrow morning in light of James 4 I think it would be fair to ask why do I want a helicopter well, maybe the answer is that it was my childhood dream to fly a helicopter. Maybe I want a helicopter so that I can have a fun day tooling around in the skies and chasing down the neighbor's cows. Perhaps God would answer that with a no, because my motivation was selfish. Not to mention I probably end up on the evening news. Scott would probably be back to preaching every single week. <laughs> Let's flip that around now. This time, let's say that I was a missionary to an unreached people group. And there was an island that I was seeking to reach for Christ. Now let's say I received news that a tsunami had come through and devastated that island. And I knew that there were unsaved, dying people there. And I desperately wanted to minister the gospel in this crucial time. But I literally had no way of getting there. I think that it would be right for me to trust in this promise and pray that God would provide a helicopter or some sort of means for me to be able to get there. And I think in light of this text, it would be appropriate for me to trust that God would bring that. We should pray for things with confidence in God and with confidence that he will provide what we need. Jesus is certainly in this passage calling us to pray for things that we need, especially even big things. At least they seem big to us. You know, we shouldn't think that God is only powerful to answer our small prayer requests. You know, God is able to grant you a parking spot when you're running late for an appointment and you need to get in. Seems like a small thing. And he can provide a job for you. To us, that feels like a big thing. He's able to provide your daily food. And he is able to provide a spouse for you. He is able to help you find your missing glasses you can decide whether that's a big or a small thing. Uh, 
And he can help you and grant you the words that you need to bring a missing sheep home to him. It is no harder for God to do something that's big in our eyes than it is for him to do something that's small in our eyes. We just tend to think it is. Before we move on from the topic of faith-filled prayer here, I want to address one more important aspect. As we think about what Jesus is meaning here, I want to address one more thing. And I don't want to caveat this promise to death here, but I would be remiss if I didn't mention this here. You see, if I leave it where it's at right now, what I've said thus far, the next time you get a no in prayer, what options have I left for you? From this passage and from James that we've seen so far, it would seem that God gave you a no because you doubted. Or perhaps what you wanted was sinful. Or what you wanted, you were going to use sinfully. Thus far, those are the only three reasons I've given you for why God might say no and not give you what you asked for. In all three cases, uh, it's essentially bad on you. That would be a hard place to be. But I don't think that those are the only three categories that the scripture gives us for why God may say no. I want to argue that God may say no for now because there is a greater yes coming. And it might not have to do with unbelief or sin in our hearts or in the heart of the person praying. I think this point is actually extremely clear in scripture. Let's flip a few pages ahead in Mark's gospel. Look at Mark chapter 14. And start in verse 32. This is where Jesus is praying in the Gethsemane, in the garden of Gethsemane. This is only a few chapters ahead of where we're at. Mark 32. Excuse me, Mark 14, 32. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed. If it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. I want to walk slowly through Jesus' prayer. The first thing he says is, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Now, is there an ounce of doubt in Jesus at this point? Absolutely not. Jesus is praying full of faith here. There's no doubt in his prayer. He knows who God is. He knows who God is to him. He says of God, he says, Abba, Father. Abba is a term of endearment. He knows that God is his affectionate Father. And that as his Father, he can do whatever he pleases. He says, all things are possible for you. There's no doubt there. And Jesus makes his request in a straightforward manner. Remove this cup from me. Jesus is praying that the cup that he must drink would be removed, that it would pass. I think this is an understandable prayer from Jesus. Jesus knows, 
He's already prophesied three times that we've seen in Mark's gospel that he is going to be unjustly and cruelly executed. He's going to be tortured and killed. And he will be exposed to the wrath of God for our sake on the cross. Is it a sinful desire to pray that we would not be unjustly murdered? No, that's not a sinful desire. It's not a sinful motivation to pray that we wouldn't suffer like that. I mean, how could it be? He is the sinless Son of God. And in faith he prays, yet not what I will, but what you will. In faith, he submits himself to his Father's will. And it was Jesus' will to walk in his Father's will. So Jesus prays without a shred of doubt. And he prays without a shred of sin. And what is the answer that Jesus receives? I want to argue that Jesus receives a no and a yes. I want to jump. You can go here if you want, or you can just listen. I want to go to Hebrews chapter 5. At the end of chapter 4, the author of Hebrews talks about our great high priest, and that discussion continues into chapter 5. Chapter 5, verse 7, down to 9. The author of Hebrews says, In the day of his... Excuse me. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, with Hebrews, there's always a lot in every single verse. Uh, There's a ton there, but did you catch some of that? First of all, Jesus cries out to him who was able to save him from death. I think that refers at least in part to Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane and perhaps his prayers from the cross as well. And we know what happens to Jesus. There is no other way to save sinful people. If we are to be saved, then Jesus must die in our place. And his prayer for the cup to pass is not answered in the affirmative. He gets a no to that specific aspect of his prayer request. The faith-filled, sinless Son of God does not receive the thing that he asked for from his Father. And yet, he receives something better. The author of Hebrews says that he was heard... Because of his reverence. Now, I don't think that the author of Hebrews is just simply saying, well, God registered that he had a prayer request. He was heard means that the Father heard it and received his prayer request. Jesus would die, but he would be saved through death, from death, in a greater way. He would be saved, I'll put that the other way, he would be saved from death through death and never to die again. And by that, he would secure salvation for sinners. You see that in the verses that follow. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. 
So Jesus receives an initial no, but a far greater yes. The no that leads to the cross leads to God's yes for his people and to the yes of the resurrection, neither of which would have happened without the no in Gethsemane. So you may pray in full faith and receive a no answer. That does not necessarily mean that you doubted or that you wanted something sinful or that you wanted something to use for a sinful purpose. Of course, we do want to examine our hearts. Uh, We do want to bring our hearts before the Lord. Uh, Even what Scott shared in the scripture reading, uh, we can see that God sees everything and we can ask him to reveal that to us. Just because we received a no for now does not mean that we have prayed deficiently. It may mean that there is something greater that God is going to do in our lives for our sake and for the sake of others. Now, how do I reconcile Jesus' prayer in the garden with Jesus' promise relating to ask anything? How do we bring those together? I don't think that there's any contradiction in what Jesus says here in our text today, and what happens in his prayer later. As best I can understand it, when Jesus calls us to pray in faith, he includes in that the possibility that God will answer a greater yes for us. So I think faith emboldens us in our prayer in two ways. It emboldens us, strengthens us to pray, seeking an answer from God, And it opens us to accepting the answer that God gives and in the timing that he gives it. So we pray to God in faith, confident in the one who answers and in how he answers. I think this brings us back to what Jesus says to his disciples and to us in Matthew chapter 7, verse 7 to 11. Jesus says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives And the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So in these verses, in our text and elsewhere, Jesus is calling us to pray in faith to God. We have just a few minutes left here, and with that, I do want to look at our second point. We've seen the call to pray with faith in our hearts to God. Uh, we should pray also with forgiveness in our heart. We've seen that praying without faith can hinder our prayers, um, and we'll see as well that praying without forgiveness can too. If we go back in our text, Chapter 11, verse 25. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. We often bow our heads in prayer, or maybe we kneel, we get down on our knees. Uh, Jesus mentions standing, when you stand in prayer. That's a very common Jewish way of praying, to stand and pray. Uh, Certainly doesn't only apply to when you're standing and praying. This is just a common way of praying. So, Jesus is basically saying, whenever you pray. Jesus gives a command here, again, that isn't complicated, but it is extremely hard. When we stand praying, forgive. 
when you are praying, if your heart gets riled up with an offense, forgive. Now, you will probably need to wrestle with God over the very matter that has just come to your mind. But make sure that you wrestle towards forgiveness. In that process of forgiveness, God may make it clear that you need to have a hard conversation. Forgiving doesn't mean that we don't have conversations about offenses. In fact, Jesus will teach in Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 17, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. From that, I want to say that Jesus teaches clearly that there is a place for confronting sin. It's right to have hard conversations about sin. And it's also right to forgive. We must not neglect what Jesus says here. In fact, we should even approach confrontation with forgiveness in our hearts already. We should seek to pursue reconciliation, say this further even, we want to pursue reconciliation out of and in light of the reconciliation that we have with God. Some can be troubled by what Jesus says at the end of Mark eleven twenty five when he calls us to forgive. He says, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. So we might wonder, is Jesus telling us that we have to earn forgiveness by extending forgiveness? No, that's certainly not what Jesus means here. Scripture teaches us elsewhere that our salvation is by grace through faith alone. It's not by works. Um, At the same time, uh, a heart that simply cannot forgive very well may be the same heart that has never truly experienced the forgiveness of God. When you see both your own sinful offense towards God and the rich mercy that he has shown, then you are massively freed up to forgive the offense that others have committed against you. The person who acknowledges his own sinfulness uh, and sees the mercy of God is freed up to forgive others. The person who does not acknowledge his own sinfulness, nor sees the incredible mercy of God, finds it awfully hard to forgive the offenses of others. We're going to pick this back up in our communion time in just a moment. As we draw the sermon to a close, I want to pull it all together. Jesus calls us to pray with faith in our hearts and forgiveness in our hearts. He calls us to believe in God and to forgive our enemies. Is that complicated? No, it's not complicated. Is it easy? Absolutely not. It will take a miracle of God for us to be able to walk in what he's called. He will have to help us. But I want to say that there is a bottomless well of joy and peace that we find if we walk in what Jesus says here. Imagine if the circumstances of your life and the hard people in your life couldn't steal your peace and your joy. That would be a good place to be in. And in our passage, Jesus invites us uh, into that place as we pray in faith and forgive. I want to invite the men to prepare for communion, Elizabeth to come and play.